Welcome to Terminal Talk, our podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. Terminal Talk was recorded live in front of a live studio audience. Where where are they? They left. <laughs> but they were here for a while. They were, and they were loud. I'm glad we got rid of those. Yeah, I was excited. I was excited, but you know, <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to worry about that background noise now. And we have some really great guests today. This is. What, day two of te- uh, Tech U, right? It feels like at least eight. Yeah, it's been a long week. Long week. Long week. But Tuesday, we have with us uh, two great guests. Crypto Tuesday. It's <laughs> Yeah, that rolls right off the tongue. Yeah. We have Isha Powers, who's a developer for crypto. Yes. And we have Greg Boyd, who uh, is in the field all the time. You're an architect. Would you consider yourself an architect or I'm an architect and, and more just of a helper and helping customers understand and implement the technology. Cool. So this is going to be awesome. Yeah. Um, I heard you guys, uh, fight all the time. So (laughs) we're really looking forward to getting, we know that I'm always right. We're good. (laughs) (laughs) We have our opinions (laughs) and they're good and they're good. So let's start, uh, Isho, IBM's been spending like a ton of money on crypto lately. So you're happy, right? For the first time since I've met you. (laughs) Yeah, this is awesome. We're getting so much attention and focus on pervasive encryption and crypto technology, hardware, software, everything. It's, It's amazing. And have you been kind of leading the effort here? I know that you spend almost as much time with customers as you do with development, right? Yeah, it's actually picked up quite a bit. A lot of my main job really is to be a software developer. So I'm one of the developers for ICSF, the Integrated Cryptographic Services Facility for ZOS. So that's mainly what I should be doing. But I also do a lot of education for clients. And so this year with the pickup and and everybody using pervasive encryption, I've been doing a lot of trying to get customers up to speed. So going out, talking to them, going to different conferences, trying to help them become more familiar with the different aspects of cryptography. Um, most people know that pervasive encryption, just the data set encryption piece is pretty straightforward. It's very easy to do. But the key management is the thing that kind of trips people up a bit. So I've done quite a few presentations on key management and also understanding the different layers of encryption. What would you say is the hardest thing for them to catch, to understand? Let's see. Thinking about the hardest thing for them to understand. Yeah, let's start there. from a pervasive encryption perspective or just general cryptography general general cryptography would be a good start right I mean, most of the the math behind the different algorithms is fairly complicated I think understanding how to use the different APIs that are available the callable services whether it's ICSF or Java or however which way they're trying to invoke the APIs to do crypto trying to string them together to perform specific crypto function is a challenge I spent a lot of time like over the last couple of years creating rec samples showing people how to do how to put together the different APIs and how to perform specific crypto function because it's not necessarily intuitive how to actually do that. So a customer may may come in and say, hey, I know I want to do some sort of, I want to do encryption. Um, I want to encrypt this particular data. But they go to the application programmer's guide and they can't figure out which of the APIs they should be using or how they should put it together or what are the different parameters. And so from an application, you know, level encryption perspective, that's usually a big challenge. But I thought that pervasive encryption was like another switch right next to the EPO switch. And I just had to turn it to the on position and then I have it. That's 
You're telling me that's not how that works? <laughs> pervasive encryption, data encryption is as easy as it gets. It's so easy to just add a key label to like a data set profile and just encrypt everything that's covered by that data set profile. It is so simple and straightforward. They don't need to code applications. They don't need to know any of the details about the algorithms. It is as easy as it gets. <laughs> but you're saying there's a whole additional layer of the, the, the key management. Yeah, the key management is what they forget. So the key management, you still, you know, even when you turn on pervasive encryption, you put in that key label. It looks easy, right? But that key label has to be generated in a cryptographic, you know, a data set. And then you have set. to write it down on the post-it note and put it on the back side Yeah, the so <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about what not to do. <laughs> oh, oh. So pervasive encryption really is simple. It's just systems programmers doing their job. It's doing the things they know how to do, setting the RACF administrator, defining the profiles they need. But the hard part of crypto is key management, keeping those keys secure and in the integrity of the keys. Because if you encrypt some data today, in six months when you need to recover that data, that key better still be there. Otherwise, <laughs> the data's gone. So that's why you put it on a post-it note. But you put it behind the door. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, so <laughs> it doesn't blow off. Yeah. Okay, it. see? <laughs> Always thinking. So, uh, Greg, you spend a lot of time helping people get started down this path, right? Uh, is, is, there, um, is there the starting point for most customers? or? So I, I guess I deal with two different types of customers. One's that already have ICSF up and running. And when I'm dealing with those customers, it's making sure that the processes and procedures that they've already got in place are good, solid procedures. I talk about the concept of crypto hygiene and doing things the right way. And that's really important because if you're not doing the things the right way, it's going to come back to bite you later. Uh, when you get into things like disaster recovery, you got to be able to recover that key material at the DR site. And if you don't have a good process in place, that can become a challenge. Run into a couple cases where customers, I don't know what my master keys are. That's not a problem. As long as the machine's still up and running, right. it exactly. knows what the master keys are, and you can recover. It's when you unplug that puppy, now those keys are gone. Now you got an issue. The other type of customer I'm dealing with is brand-new customers who now, oh, there's this wonderful thing called pervasive encryption. Oh, I've got to turn on ICSF. So we get to start with ground zero with them, and that maybe maybe is a little bit easier in helping them get up to speed. But the other issue you deal with there is internal politics because nobody wants to be responsible for those keys to the kingdom. If I mess it up, we're out of business. And that's a worry for some people. And the nice thing about Crypto on Z is it's fairly – it's pretty solid. It's pretty bulletproof. Now, God keeps make, creating smarter fools and people <laughs> find a way – but that's the nicest way of phrasing that. <laughs> I like that. If if you if you pay attention, if you're careful, it's it's pretty solid technology. It works pretty well. And as long as I use my my Des 16 encryption, I'm good to go, right? <laughs> my double oh, rock 13. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah double rock 13 is always a good one. Yeah. Um, oh, no. That's another one of those you know, how not to do things. <laughs> What was the other one? Double, double XOR? Double XOR, I was going to say. Yeah. Oh, wow. Double XOR, I'm done. <laughs> I did it twice, so it's got to be better. Wow. <laughs> Des 16 is no good. What, what do I do? What do I, what's, what's the best encryption today? Yeah, how do I not get fooled by somebody saying, you know, double rot 13? <laughs> <laughs> the recommendation today, so the, the algorithm that 
you know, is preferred in the industry right now is AES, so the Advanced Encrypt- Encryption Standard. Uh, that one supports keys that are uh, that will be 16, 24, or 32 bytes. In fact, for dataset encryption, we use the strongest one, which is a 32-byte AES key, which is 256 bits. So that's the strongest key you can have. And if you are curious from the perspective of, okay, what do these 256 bits mean for me? It means that, you know, a bit can be 0 or 1, right? So you have two options there, two to the 256 combinations you would have to try in order to exhaust the entire key space of an AES 32-byte key, which uh, would take very, 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 very long time. It's like 18 heat deaths of the universe type of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. As people start to look towards, you know, these, these new types of uh, algorithms, where does like a uh, elliptical key and, and all that play into it? Or do I not need to know about that as I look at two standards? Elliptic curve is awesome. I let Greg talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. He just had a session on it yesterday. Oh, really? So, so as Isha said, you know, if you're doing symmetric key, the recommendation is AES, and the longer the key length, the stronger. Now, you should not be doing single DES at this point. That's considered weak. Triple DES is still considered pretty strong. But what I tell customers, if, if you're rolling out a brand-new application, you need to be going with AES. And if you've got existing encryption with triple DES, you're good for a while. You don't have to jump off of it, but you need to start thinking about migrating off of it. you got a kind of a similar issue with ECC. RSA is still very widespread. It will be in use for my lifetime for sure. It's going to be around a long time just because there's so much already in it. The advantage of elliptic curve is it's got shorter key lengths, which means your hardware technology doesn't have to be quite as robust. So if you've used a chip card at Walmart, you pop that thing in, and it takes a couple seconds for it to process. That's because those are pretty heavy-duty calculations that take a while. Elliptic curve gives us the advantage of being able to have smaller keys. You have to have less energy, less power going into that chip. You have to have less technology in the chip. So ECC is probably the way of the future. But once again, RSA is going to be around for a long time to come. How can it create um, greater security in with requiring less processing power? So public-private key, which is what RSA and ECC is, relies on what are called trapdoor functions. A trapdoor function, it's easy to perform a calculation in one direction. It's very difficult to reverse the process. So when you think about something like Diffie-Hellman, you can calculate g to the x and you can calculate g to the y, but given g to the xy, it's very difficult to recover those x and y values. And you can kind of think those as your public and private key. So it's a question of how strong is that trapdoor function. Elliptic curve uses the relationship of a a point to an elliptic curve, and that kind of becomes your public-private key pair. Greatly oversimplifying here, but Hmm. the idea is you can do the same level of security with a much shorter key value. He's greatly oversimplifying, and I still have no idea what he's saying. (laughs) (laughs) So generally, um, like you said, if you have uh, triple DES in an existing application, you might be good for a little while. Um, For an application that needs to be just completely overhauled, the business logic is fine, but security is an issue. What are some steps that can be taken to, to harden something up? 
It kind of depends from my perspective on how you're doing things today. Uh, you should talk about coding the APIs and all, and, and that's difficult. That's hard to understand how to string those together. I, I definitely agree with that. What I'm seeing is that most customers are using packages. They're using tools like the data encryption tool for DB2 and IMS, or it's the Guardian Memphisphere product, or maybe the encryption facility for ZOS. Those are very much simplified in that they provide that framework. You just need to provide a couple parameters around that. So the answer is it depends on which ones of those you're using as to what your options are about hardening it. Pervasive encryption gives you the advantage, again, of the system programmers can go just go do their thing, and it kind of happens under the covers that you get that security around the data. doesn't protect you from everything. It doesn't protect against all attacks, but it does widen and, and provide a stronger basic starting point that your data is going to be secured by default. And Greg just proved that he's a, a person in the field because you asked him a question and he answered with, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I've been doing crypto for a while, and, and, and I've been in IBM, was in for IBM for a while, and the answer was always depend, it depends. But with crypto, it really does depend. Mm -hmm. You're talking about symmetric versus asymmetric versus hashing versus message authentication. There's just lots of variations in there, lots of things that come into play, and you got to consider all of them. So – We've been throwing around a lot of different terms here, and some of us may not be as well-versed in that as others. So can you take a couple of seconds and describe the difference between symmetric and asymmetric keys? Sure. Uh, so symmetric keys are the, the keys that you use for most data encryption, or if you think about you're doing secure communications with another partner, it you can do a lot of encryption in bulk using symmetric keys because what it does is it takes whatever information you have and it breaks it up into blocks and it performs symmetric crypto operations on those blocks. So it gives you the ability to encrypt lots and lots and lots of data. However, the downside is symmetric keys, you have to have the same key on both the person who is sending and the person who is receiving. So this could be a problem if you're trying to communicate with somebody who's like on the other side of the country. You're trying to figure out how do you actually get them a symmetric key. So that's where asymmetric keys come into play. Where now what you have is you have a key pair where you have a public and a private key. The public key is something you can share with the entire world. Anybody can access your public key. Your private key is something that you keep unique to you. So what you can do if somebody wants to send you, you know, some information, what they can do is they can encrypt that under the public key, your public key. And then once you receive that information, you can decrypt it. And you're the only person that can decrypt it because you're the only person with the private key. One of the downsides with asymmetric encryption, though, is that you are limited in how much data you can encrypt with that, you know, public-private key pair. Because you can start to see some sort of patterns in the way that uh, it, it starts to get packaged. See, he knows his stuff. Look <laughs> at that. <laughs> so, yeah. You... Allison Bob taught me a little bit about that. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, yeah, you're limited in how much data you can encrypt. So you can't, you know, encrypt large amounts of information with asymmetric keys. However, you can encrypt other keys with those asymmetric keys. So knowing that you can encrypt large amounts of data with a symmetric key, if you can share that symmetric key with a partner, now you've shared that key using public-private, you know, 
um, crypto operations, now you can actually encrypt lots of data communications between those two parties, like as much data as you'd like Because you to. can send that symmetric key across because it's encrypted using that. Encrypted using the public key of the partner. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots of products rely on that complementary, so system SSL, securing network communications, use that technology. The encryption facility for ZOS uses that. Um, when you're doing DASD encryption and tape encryption, you're doing the same thing. It's a symmetric key that protects the data that's on the platter or on the tape, but it's asymmetric encryption that is protecting that key as it moves back and forth between the device. So they're very complementary, and it's they, there are lots of products that you, you need both technologies when you're doing crypto. So as the uh, – I'm going to go back to like you know, triple des and some of the older uh, shorter keys. As they become weaker in the eyes of you know, the security community, is it because that people have found new ways of reverse engineering them or is it just that machines are getting faster and can do more tries? It's mostly that the machines are getting faster and okay. Moore, Moore's law applies – and it it becomes easier and easier to do. Typically, what you're talking about is a brute force attack where you try every possible key value. And as the machines get faster, it's easy to try all those combinations. Okay. Des single Des encryption, you can get a you can build a specialized machine that can probably crack Des in a matter of hours, not days. Triple Des, it's going to take a lot a little more longer. AES a lot longer. I forget who said it, but it was something like, if you have a better shovel and you can dig deeper, somebody else can buy that same shovel and dig just as deep to find the stuff you're trying to hide. Yes. <laughs> it's the same shovel. <laughs> yes. So the algorithms don't provide the security. It's the key that provides the security. And that's why keeping those keys protected and secure is so important. So, so how many keys do I have to be worried about? Am I, am I, am I a janitor now and I've got this big key <laughs> ring? Or what's, what's best practices? Obviously, you don't want you know, everything under one key, but I don't, maybe you don't want to have a new key out there for every data set. That, There's a two-word answer. Uh, is the first one it? <laughs> and the second one might be depends. <laughs> uh, give, me some, give me some best practices and guidelines here. So once again, it, it depends a little bit on the products that you're using and, and, you know, how you're using crypto. So, you know, from a pervasive encryption perspective, I, I definitely would not recommend one, using one key for all the data. I would also not recommend using a, a unique key for every data set. That's just too many keys there. Now, that said, if I've got X number of keys that I'm using with pervasive encryption, if I've also got data encryption using the, the Infosphere Guardium data encryption tool, I'm going to have another set of keys for those. So you could get into an environment where a, you might have hundreds, thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of keys. And ICSF and the crypto technology on Z can support that kind of volume. You can support that number of keys. I will say our system test team has millions of keys in their key stores. And I don't know too many customers that are running with millions, <laughs> but I do know customers that have a number that is out of control where they haven't managed it properly and they've been generating keys. And now they're dealing with, how do I know whether I still need that key or not? And that's where some of the key management tools start to come in play. You, you, when you start getting any kind of volume, you're going to have to look at solutions like key management tools and managing a key life cycle. How long do I need that key and how long do I need to keep it around? So you, you've just walked into somebody's uh, business 
and they say, we have too many keys. We're not sure which ones we need, which ones we don't. How do you attack that problem? There's some there are some new tools right now that are available to give you some insights into what's going on with your keys. So back, I believe, in um, ICSF HCR 77 ABLE 1, we provided the capability where if you use this new key data set format that's available, you can actually track key reference dates. So you will know when a key has been used, and you will actually know what service that it was used in. And you can use that to determine whether a key had been used recently. There's also additional key auditing information, records that were created in HR 77 Charlie Zero that are available as well. She's just making this up. Hard to believe. Yeah. The ICSF people who are listening, they know exactly what I'm talking about. These are not made up numbers. Well, I read in Element OP <laughs> Q507. <laughs> <laughs> so any <Y-Y-Z>. of those- <laughs> So you have lots of support now for like um auditing, for key reference date tracking, and you can use that information to help you determine whether or not a key is still being used. Now there is a caveat. So I found when I, I was playing around with the data set encryption over the summer creating samples and I had I had a great time with it. It was really fun. This is fun for me. It's Sounds like it. <laughs> it's where I want to spend my summer vacation. <laughs> Wee. <laughs> and what I, I realized is that it, traditionally it had been as far as key management goes. Like for instance, you may say you have some set of keys that are being used for a period of time. You have these key reference dates that you're you're tracking this with ICSF. So you have an idea whether or not that key has been used. So you can say after some period of time, okay, you know, this key hasn't been used in a year, so I'm going to go ahead and archive that key. Fine. You archive the key, leave it archived for like another year, see if anybody's tried to use it. And if, you know, they've tried to use it, you can either bring it back and make it active again or you can say stop using that key. We're getting, we're going to get rid of it so well, with data set encryption, it's you have to think about it completely different now because maybe a year time span or two year time span was okay for like other types of keys, but you can have data sets that haven't been opened for 10 years. You don't want to accidentally delete a key for a data set because if you delete the key, then you've essentially deleted your data. You're not going to recover from that. So well, you have to put in place new processes and procedures for how you're going to manage keys that are used to protect data sets. You're going to need to be able to recognize that the particular key label is associated with the data set, and you're going to need to make sure that that key doesn't get deleted over time. As you're doing your normal cleanup of your key stores, you do not want to delete your data set keys by accident. So if you archive a data set, if you send it off to Iron Mountain for backup, and you want to recover that data in 10 years, that key better still be available. It needs to have the same data retention policy. Well, and I know of customers that have data retention policies of a long time, Uh like 100-plus years. An insurance company, they cut a brand-new insurance policy on a newborn baby. They may have to keep that data around for a long, long time. The technology is going to change. The DASI devices, the tape devices are going to change. But if that data was encrypted using AES 256-bit with key ABCD in 101 years when they want to recover it, ABCD better still be there. So key management and key lifecycle management is becoming really, really important. And you should talk about the various generations of ICSF that have added support a lot of customers, they only upgrade their version of ICSF when they upgrade their version of ZOS. 
So I strongly encourage customers, especially those new customers that are just rolling out, get on the most current version of ICSF so you can start populating those fields in that KDSR format data set. So you get those date last used fields so they get populated now. Even if you don't archive them for 10 years, at least in 10 years you can come back and say, okay, it hasn't been used for 10 years. Maybe I can get rid of it. So I, do I store the key with the file? Here's the file. Here's the key. <laughs> the key the... label is actually stored with the file. Okay. So at the time that you allocate the data set, DFSMS will pull the key label from the, the profile that's protecting it, and it'll store that in the catalog with the data set. So it always has the key label. It also calculates what's the equivalent of a key check value. So it knows not only the label to find it, but it knows what the to some degree what that key is. So it can do a check on it to make sure that a person hasn't gone in. Like you can go into your key store and you have the same label and you can change that key value. If you do that, that's bad. <laughs> that's really bad. I was trying to help. <laughs> really bad. All these numbers were out of order. <laughs> I feel much more comfortable now that I'm right away. DFSMS will yell at you. <laughs> like, uh -uh, that's not the right key, and that's just the end of it. It's like you think it's the same key label, but it's not the actual same key value. Then DFSMS will have a problem with actually opening that data set. Okay. So it, it does both as far as associating that key label with the, with the data set. Sounds like a good way to make your own ransomware. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> now, what? Uh, how does the hardware play into this? Because the uh, the the crypto cards is something that you know often gets shown off on the new boxes. You know what gets offloaded to that, and what does it do better than than the software? So it depends on how you think about it. If, if are you thinking about in terms of data encryption or just depends. in general? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I what, from what I understand, the reason I'm, I'm backing up a little bit on this is. Um, People think that, oh, I'm going to let the crypto cards handle everything. It'll be so much faster. And that's not true because there's some <laughs> things that can handle better and some things that, it, you know, it's better to let the system run it. Yeah, crypto express cards are really awesome at keeping your data very, very, very secure. It's tamper responding, tamper sensing. If you try to um, open it up, try to get some of the master keys. If you try to, they actually have tests where they actually try to, like, explode it. So they have it in a room where they actually, like, you know. I don't know if it's like real explosives, but either way, they do lots of tests where they actually try to see if they can extract a master key from one of these tamper-responding HSMs. Yeah, if you so, try to mess with the voltage to slow it down. Exactly. Yeah. Voltage. They also do um, checks for defense against uh, side channel attacks, making sure they're not giving away any information with the amount of sound that is, you know, coming out of the different, you know, the cards. So it's it's pretty impressive what they do. What about telekinesis? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they've done that. That would be awesome. I want that to be my new job. Developing a test for that could be fun. I just sit there and go, nope, nope, it's good, it's good. <laughs> so the Crypto Express cards are tamper responding. They're the most secure uh, HSM that you can have for IBMZ. Now, an alternative, you know, hardware engine would be CPACF, where you can actually, you know, CPACF, you have it with every processor unit, and it's built in. It's just calling an instruction. It is the fastest way to do you know, symmetric operations, random numbers, hashing, you can do all that with CPACF. But you kind of lose the security, right? You're not, it's not tamper, you know, tamper sensing, tamper responding. Um, you're, you're, all the keys are in the clear at that point. There is a hybrid now called protected key. Um, but generally speaking that you're, you're still in your key store, you're going to have your keys in the clear. So what, 
You said CPAC-F. What is that? Oh. oh, you take that when you start to feel sick. <laughs> it eases my stomach. Yes. Yeah. Central processor assist for cryptographic functions. So it's a set of instructions that are available um, to do symmetric hashing and random number generation for, for IBMC. Uh, and, and now I'm disappointed because I was hoping the F stood for facility. Oh, <laughs> normally it does. That's a, usually a safe bet. <laughs> so the CPAC F is really fast. But it only has a limited set of functions. It basically does symmetric encryption and hashing. Crypto Express card also does symmetric encryption. The difference is the security around the key material. Plus, the Crypto Express card can do all of those asymmetric operations as well. The CPAC-F doesn't help with those. The Crypto Express card can do random number generation, hardware random number generation. So the, the Crypto Express card has a lot more function but it comes at the price of speed. It is not nearly as fast as that CPAC-F hardware. And so, really, if we go kind of talking to the, the speed, it, is the, it isn't that the Crypto Express adapters are slow necessarily. The thing is that it's just it's more pathless to get to them. So if you have an application, it has to do a program call into ICSF. ICSF has to find a card that can support it. Then we send it to the card. Then we do the I.O. to the card. Then we, on the card, it has to be unwrapped from the master key. Then you do the operation on the data, and then you send it all the way back up the path a lot longer to get from the application to the card and back than you would, you know, application to an instruction and back. So it might be something that we use more for like a, a one-time or not as many times setup or something that's not so that something that's user not facing. Intensive. So that's kind of the way protected key works is you go out to that card one time to unwrap the key and get it in a new wrapped format. And then that wrapped key gets passed back to the CPAC-F where you do this key, the operations much faster. So that's very, very true. Um, and you get the security of the Crypto Express card. You get the performance of the CPAC-F. You just don't have quite as – it's not that tamper-resistant technology when it's running on the CPAC-F hardware. Hmm. Can you spend it just a second and talk about – uh, the random number generator is that is that cool or? Uh, yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't all of crypto cool? But <laughs> what kind of what question is it, that? Yeah. <laughs> what, what makes it cool? I guess is the question. I mean, right now, I think there are actually three random number generators that are supported in um, CPACF. Uh, I think it's uh, a pseudo random number generator. I forget what the other. There's a tr the true random number mm -hmm. generator is the newest one. What is the other one? Don't remember off the top of my head, but but basically what happened is just within the past couple of years, there have been new standards that came out for if you want to do random number generation, here's what you have to do. So there are certain protocols and a process for developing what is what is called a true random number generator. If you think about a pseudo-random number generator, you provide a seed. Hey, if it's computer software instructions, it's going to gen generate the same material over and over again. But the point is there are new standards, and the new IBM hardware is maps to those standards and supports those standards, both on the CPAC-F with the pseudo-random number and on the cards with the true random number generators. But the true random number generator actually generates random numbers, right? Yes. 
and you're well, so getting... does the pseudo random number generator. It's each each one will generate random numbers, right? But in one case with like a pseudo random number generator, you're following an, an algorithm that's probably been predefined, and that algorithm defines um, like you have one piece which would be like a seed, and then you have the random bits that can come out. So when you actually are using that in like for a real operation, the seed won't be some known value that you can you know a known value gives you the ability to test the algorithm that you implemented it correctly. Generally, you would take some sources of entropy. I mean, there could be any sources. It could be the timing. It can be jitter. It can be all sorts of things. I know, like, in the iPhone, they have, like, all kinds of ways that they have they seed for entropy sources. And they take that entropy source, that whatever that is, they digitize it, and then they use that as the seed for the random number generator. So it is, like, a defined algorithm approach, and, and the numbers are random. They're not, it's not true random numbers. But you can but. recreate that, that environment to create this, the same string of random numbers if you have the seed and it, the algorithm. Um, like I know with uh, when you set up uh, PGP on a desktop, it's like wiggle your mouse around for a little while. It's that generates the entropy. Exactly. Yep. That's the entropy. And uh, I think just last week there's an article on uh, Cloudflare. The way they generate entropy, and I don't know if this is for their enterprise products or what, but they have like a massive array of lava lamps and cameras and they use that really wow the formation of the of the lava as the source of entropy for their security products see crypto is cool and yeah. numbers so if somebody asks why we have a lava lamp in the that, that's what we're, we're generating entropy it's got nothing to do with the look yeah okay well, that's fine what about the disco ball <laughs> well we use the number of mirrors and where the right. light is reflected yeah, yeah. <laughs> So earlier you talked a little bit about that I have to be thinking about migrating old encrypted data because the keys aren't strong enough. What does it take to say, oh, I've got to get off my DES and, and, and go to an AES model? How, how hard is that well, it comes back to again. It depends. It it does. <laughs> so did, did I just earn a security badge? You sure did. <laughs> but but I think that's that's the standard IBM answer. Um, so if I'm using a tool like the data encryption tool, where I've got a database table that's encrypted, it's simply a matter of unloading the table and reloading it with the new algorithm and the the new key material. If I'm using, if I've written my own application. My application knows what fields need are being encrypted, and nobody else does. I've got to have an application that has that information and knows which fields to decrypt under the old key and re-encrypt under the new key. So you have the extreme there of you know, if you're using a product, you just use the product's facilities to unload and reload. If you're doing it within the application, that application programmer has to get involved to make it happen. You know, what's what's been kind of fun about this is I don't know what order they're going to come out, but we had uh, Chad Rickensrud in yesterday talking about security. We had you guys in today talking about crypto, and people often confuse the two. Uh, yet there's been very little overlap between what you're talking about, but it is it makes a very complete picture. So uh, you know it's it's uh it's cool to see the differences between them. Do you do you get frustrated when people think they're interchangeable? Well, no, people don't understand crypto. It's just another lock that you can put on the door. And, and, you know, when you're talking about securing the castle, the good guys have to secure every window and every door. The bad guys only have to file one unlocked one to get in. 
So crypto is just another one of those locks that you can put on the castle wall or the window or the door or the whatever. It's a, just another piece. It's a subset of the bigger picture of security. And you still got to do all that other stuff too. Mm-hmm. So uh, you guys have been doing security and crypto for for a long time and and you're obviously geeks and love it. What is uh, the next? What? Where do we go from here? What's the next cool thing in crypto? Okay, so I'm already getting excited now because I'm a nerd. <laughs> Quantum cryptography yeah. is like the next thing. And I have been like following it so closely, trying to see what's going on. Like I know IBM just posted another article about 20 qubits being available. And I'm like, oh, look at that. They're moving so fast. It's like my babies. <laughs> um, so it's it's been amazing kind of seeing what's going on there because quantum um, in terms of quantum computing, right now, you know, the computers aren't quite where they would need to be to break our existing algorithms, but they could be. There's a lot of potential there. And at that point, some of the algorithms that we have today, like symmetric algorithms, their strength will be cut in half, essentially. RSA and ECC will be broken very easily with quantum computers um, when they get to the level that they have enough qubits to do so. Um, so we're kind of watching that space and also investing and in looking at different um, approaches, quantum-resistant uh, cryptography. Uh, I think like one of the big ones is like lattice-based um, cryptography. There's all kinds of algorithms that are being developed. Nothing is standardized yet for quantum cryptography, but everyone's looking at that space because we see that you know we don't know when we're going to need it yet. It's really hard to determine like you know when we're going to have enough qubits to you know break like you know RSA or something like that. But we're all starting to get um, get prepared for it. So it's it's kind of exciting to kind of see what's going on in that space and and what we're going to do. Another area that's interesting to me is is the idea of homomorphic encryption, where you can process the ciphertext, so you don't even have to decrypt it to go start adding numbers together. That just boggles my mind at how you could do that, and it's way above my pay grade. But someday that'll probably work, and we'll have to implement that too. That'll be fun. That's that kind of math that has, like, a whole lot of letters in it (laughs) (laughs) and those weird Greek symbols. Yes, yes. Um, Yeah, yeah, I'll get lost real quick when it comes to that. Yeah, I heard uh, Donna Dillenberger talking about that. I'm like, that is incredible. I have no idea how that could possibly work, but – How could you do that? I'm I'm ready for it. I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much uh, for for, uh, being on our show. Uh, I don't know half of what you guys are talking about, uh, but I think it, it's a really good start for somebody who's trying to say, what is this crypto and why is it? I agree. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Old man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence signing off.